Is corruption like the weather? We all complain about it, but don't do anything about it. I'm Richard Miles, and here with the smart answers is Brian Winter, Editor-in-Chief of the America's Quarterly. Welcome back, Brian. Always a pleasure to be with you, Richard. So last time we talked, uh, I think it was in February, and it seemed like you were there was like a marching band convention in the hotel or something like that? Yeah, we had some technical difficulties that time around, but I've chosen a, a nice, quiet ice cave in Norway for us to speak, where there will be no, no disturbances at all. Great. So you're in an undisclosed location, safe and sound. Uh, so I want to point out, Brian, on, the, on my last show, um, uh, it was right after you'd written the article uh, basically saying that, you know, uh, was Latin America kind of Trumpista? And um, and I even named my podcast Make Latin America Great Again, and I still got no hate mail. Well, that's because the whole world is going Trump, Richard. <laughs> I, guess, I guess, although my, my son did tell me to quit using Make Anything Great Again, he said it's a cliche now and everyone uses it. So, okay, last time I ever say that. Well, if it makes you feel any better, our first issue of the year was our big election preview, and we the, the headline on that one was Latin America first. So you see, all of us all of us fall into this trap at one point or another. Right. We're going to have to move on to the new cliches, I guess. Um, so, so Brian, as I as uh, those who listened to the first show know, you've got an interesting background. You grew up in Texas, went to high school in Argentina, somehow ended up as a correspondent for Reuters instead, or maybe in addition to. Then you were in Mexico City and Brazil. What I I remember is that the timing was kind of suspicious that there seemed to be an economic meltdown associated every time you went to a, a country yeah i'm like the grim reaper for countries uh that is my actual profession and so i'm accepting payment slash bribes to go you know whether to north korea or china or or wherever wherever people want me to go next so now that we've sufficiently destroyed your credibility uh, brian we're now going to ask you to talk about uh, corruption so let, let's start with kind of a, a rhetorical question here you know, why is corruption is one of those issues that people talk a lot about, particularly sort of Latin America specialists. But sometimes we don't really define what we're talking about. We don't really define exactly why it's bad. I mean, we know corruption is wrong. Some guy takes a bribe for a contract. But what's what's the ultimate uh, effect of corruption other than somebody gets rich? Well, I mean, the effect is it's, it's ultimately it's corrosive to democracy. When people see corruption around them, they stop believing in their elected representatives. And we see evidence of that happening throughout Latin America right now as a side effect of an otherwise positive trend, which is the fact that judicial institutions are finding and punishing and convicting and sending people to jail in a way that you never saw in Latin America before. And, and that's great, but it leads to kind of a catch. It, it's kind of a catch 22 because it was the spread of democracy that has made those independent institutions possible. And yet what they're digging up, uh, as long as the amount of corruption itself remains the same, people, you know, voters get really frustrated and you see support for democracy erode. And that's unquestionably what's happening in the region right now. I mean, according to Latino Barometro, uh, support for Latin America, or I'm sorry, support for democracy in Latin America as a whole is at its lowest level since 2003. And it's actually, it tends to be lowest in the countries that have seen the most scandals, uh, which paradoxically have some of the strongest institutions, Brazil being the best example, where you, you know, you have an unquestionable success story there in terms of what the judges and prosecutors have been able to do, but you also have just 13% of Brazilians now who say they're satisfied with their democracy, which is the lowest level in all of Latin America. 
So Brazil sort of seems to be the epicenter of corruption, or at least it has been for the last few years. In particular, there is a scandal called Car Wash that I, I wager a lot of people have heard about, but they may not know the actual details of the scandal itself. So let's start there. Tell us a little bit about what does Car Wash refer to? What, what's the timeline and where are we at with that scandal? Well, it, you know, it's a, it's a long story, but it basically begins four years ago, almost exactly four years ago, um, with a money laundering ring that was operating out of a gas station in Brasilia. And the guy who was at the center of this had been in the eyes of federal police for a very long time, had actually been caught once before. And they, they, they caught him again, and through some, some very good police work and, and some impeccable you know, use of technology and other tools at their, in their toolkit, prosecutors were able to connect this, you know, this, this two-bit money launderer to a much broader corruption scheme that ended up involving, had uh, the state-run oil company in Brazil, Petrobras, at its core. And the thing that was unique about this case was just how monstrously big it was. Uh, Petrobras, at its height, if you take the company and its suppliers, was equivalent to about 10% of Brazil's economy. And the network of contractors and suppliers that worked with it um, was huge and included companies that have uh, since become household names, not just in Brazil, but elsewhere in Latin America and even amongst you know people like us who follow these things in, in the rest of the world, uh, names like OAS and Camargo Correa and, and most notoriously Odebrecht. And so, you know, this really was just a case where you had a group of, of federal police and prosecutors in, in a, a mid-sized city of Brazil, Curitiba, who found a string and kept pulling on it and very, very somewhat quickly found out that it was connected to a huge swath of not just the economy, but the political class as well. Let me see if I understand this correctly. Uh, you're talking about a, a guy at, uh, I mean, was it a literal car wash or was it just a gas station? So this was, yeah, this was a gas station without a car wash, but the probe was named Car Wash, which I'm sure, I actually think is one of the things about this probe that nobody's ever been able to properly explain. Um, but yes, I mean, that, that, that's basically the story. So was he was he like the the top of the pyramid, or was this guy just a, a a local affiliate of a much larger corruption scheme? Because you're talking about pretty large sums of money. Was it just this one guy, or was he he just one of many people like him? The guy who they found was a bag man, and and he was somewhat important. He was in what in Brazilian slang was called a doleiro, which is somebody who handles dollars, somebody who's essentially a black market money launderer. Um, and no, he was not at the top of the ring, but he was shuttling big quantities of cash back and forth. And, um, you know, very quickly in the course of striking a plea bargain for himself, uh, said quite early in 2014 that if I say everything I know, the republic will fall. And um, he hasn't, you know, he was exaggerating, but not by much. So this event, as you said, they, the investigators started pulling on a string and they uncovered a, a lot. And ultimately, quite a few high-level Brazilian politicians got caught up in this. What what are sort of the, the numbers or the magnitude in terms of what uh, you know which politicians were affected, and what are what sums of money are we talking about? And and was there an exchange in terms of legislation or contracts, or what were they what were they getting for their money? Well, you know, 
the size of this, uh, you see all kinds of numbers thrown around, but, but generally between 3 and $5 billion is thought to be involved, and, and that may even be low. It's big enough, though, that at one point when the U.S. Department of Justice got involved in this because it involved you know, companies that were doing business in the United States, uh, they referred to this as the biggest corruption scandal ever detected anywhere. Um, that gives you some idea of the sums. And basically it was, I mean, there's various ways to describe it. One way to think of it is a, a cartel um, where Petrobras's suppliers were in cahoots with people on the board and elsewhere within Petrobras who then gave, um, essentially gave out very lucrative contracts uh, in return for money that was you know, sometimes a fee, I think it was uh, 2 or 3%, if I'm not mistaken, that went back either to political parties, or and, and some of that made its way into the into the pockets of individual politicians as well. And it, you know, it has really, the consequences of this have, uh, have laid waste to the Brazilian economy, because you had very big companies, not just Petrobras, but some of these others, like Odebrecht. Odebrecht was, you know, I mean, talk about a monster. Uh, this was a company that at its peak, uh, had annual revenue that exceeded the GDP of Panama, uh, which is not, you know, not, not really the region's smallest economy. Um, and so as this corruption probe spread and as the consequences became known, you had uh, companies that ended up essentially paralyzed as a result. I don't have a list in front of me of the current people who are in jail, but, but it's, you know, it runs into the dozens. Uh, it has been mostly people from the private sector so far, in part because many of the politicians involved enjoy special um, protections, not quite immunity, but protections from prosecution that have the net effect of slowing down their trials, and meaning that they may still, I mean, some of these trials will go on for years. There's, there's uh, still, I mean, even, even if the prosecutorial phase of the probe is, is winding down. So just so I get my corruption genealogy correct here, Odebrecht, the company, were they one of the money launderers uh, in the car wash scandal? Did the investigation just lead to Odebrecht through other channels? No, well, I mean, actually, I mean, they, they were central in that they were one of the biggest companies in Brazil, one of the biggest contractors with, with Petrobras. But, you know, one of the points that sometimes gets lost here, and, and Odebrecht has become kind of a bad word in the rest of Latin America as well, because it was through Odebrecht's business that the scandal has spread into places like Peru and Colombia and Mexico and elsewhere. And, you know, one question that I always get asked is, you know, why was there, why was there so much corruption at, at, at Odebrecht? And, you know, it's not clear to me that Odebrecht was any more corrupt than, you know, many of the companies that are present in Brazil or Latin America as a whole. It seems entirely possible that they were just the ones that got caught. And we don't know for sure. Um, but, you know, their model was essentially based on um, uh, tenders and, and auctions and, and doing other business with, with governments. And they had a system in place that essentially re relied upon bribery to win those contracts. They even had a department uh, within the company called the Department of Structured Operations that was where they paid bribes from. And again, this is all very notorious in Brazil now, and people, people kind of laugh about it. Uh, but it's, it's still, we don't, we don't know how, how much of an outlier they were. Uh, they may have been more brazen. They were certainly on a bigger scale than most. 
But, you know, it's clear that a lot of this is still going on uh, in companies that are smaller as well. So in the Brazilian context, this is not exactly something new. I mean, you did an interesting piece uh, last month, I think, in which you compared car wash to earlier Brazilian scandals. So how, how does this compare? Um, and it, are things getting better or are they getting worse? So you'd had scandals before, and you'd had scandals that had erupted and were disruptive to politics. Um, of course, there had even been a president in the early 90s who was... Uh, who was who resigned on the brink of impeachment because of a corruption scandal, and um, and he's running for president again, right? <laughs> yeah. So Fernando Collor is running for president again, but even in this, even in a field where there's so much uncertainty, uh, it seems safe to say that he has exactly zero chance. Um, but it's 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 not new. Corruption's been around forever. It was prevalent during the military dictatorship as well. Uh, Brazil had a dictatorship from 1964 to 1985. Um, and as far as whether things are getting better or worse, I mean, I think it depends on how you define things, right? Um, the level of corruption, I believe, has is declining. Uh, and I, I can practically hear uh, a Brazilian or, or audience or a Latin American audience scoffing as I say that. But you know, I've been following this for, for three or four years, and I have a lot of contact with the private sector, uh, a lot of contact with the public sector in Brazil and in the rest of the region. And I'll just say this. The spectacle of previously untouchable people like Marcelo Odebrecht or Lula um, being led away to jail – that image alone has been enough to change the cost-benefit analysis that every person who pays a bribe undergoes in their head before they decide to do it. Um, and that's something that has been in place for, you know, it's really, it's been three and a half years since they really started taking people away to jail. And I, I, I do believe that it's made a difference, not just in terms of those you know, kind of the, the equations that people calculate in their heads. But also, you know, there's some really practical things at work here. There are companies that have greatly expanded their compliance departments um, and that really understand that, that things have changed. Where you see less evidence of that, um, that, that people have learned something is actually, is actually within the political class. And we have seen scandals continue to erupt, including, you know, not stuff that they're digging up from five, six, seven years ago, but things that have happened even in the last year or two, um, you know, kind of classic cash-filled suitcases found in people's apartments and, and other things. And I, I have to tell you, it, it, it just blows my mind that that is still happening, and it shows how slow to learn some of these people are because uh, to me the writing is on the wall and, and what these people who continue to engage in business as usual clearly think is that car wash you know lava jato was just a passing storm and that maybe it was just in their minds i mean i have had people admit this to me in private conversation they'll say things like well yeah no i understand but look this was a special deal this was just one, you know, really good judge and team of prosecutors in Curitiba 
who were very effective. And also, by the way, it happened at a time when the economy was bad, so people were really angry. So, of course, they were mad at politicians. And now that the economy is getting better and some other things have happened, you know, look, it's going to be business as usual is going gonna, is gonna to come back. And I, I, there's a variety of reasons why I, I just don't believe that's true. I, I, I think that this is a, a change that at least to some degree is, is here to stay. So Council of Americas, of, of which America's Quarterly uh, is a part or associated with, you all recently hosted a very a fascinating conference about dealing with the issue of corruption, inviting figures from across the region. And and you you talked about this sort of burgeoning or growing anti-corruption movement. You, you laid out a few factors in, in trying to explain that. And among them, I was intrigued by, you said, the increased use of social media. Um, that there are about 600 million social media users, users in Latin America. How is that? I mean, this is a, this is like yay Facebook, uh, right? Um, and yay Twitter, which is sort of counter the, the trend of what we're hearing now. How has social media been a catalyst for anti-corruption in Latin America? In two main ways. I mean, one, it lets people see evidence themselves. I mean... You know, videos, literally videos of people taking away suitcases of cash. There have been several of these in the Brazilian case, but also elsewhere. I mean, most notoriously, I suppose, was in Argentina, where you had this former government minister who was filmed uh, throwing suitcases of cash over a wall into a convent uh, in the southern part of the country. And, you know, these are things that now being able to see that in its purest form there on your cell phone, it really stokes people's rage. And, And it's also created a, I mean, social media, you know, truly one of the titanic changes of our time. And I feel like it's changed some values as well. And I I had somebody tell me recently that actually in the world of social media, that corruption is almost more unforgivable than murder. And I, I wouldn't care to explain why that's the case. But if you look at the polls, if you look at what makes people really angry about, you know, in their countries, even in a place like Brazil with 60,000 homicides a year, one in 10 of the world's gun deaths, uh, people routinely say in polls that they're much angrier about corruption. They believe it's a much more pressing issue for their country. The second thing that that social media does is it it lets people organize um, without any kind of government mediation. It lets them organize in real time. And the uh, prosecutors, whether it's in Brazil or in Guatemala or um, Peru or Colombia or other places where there has been this big anti-corruption push, they will all tell you that without support from society at large, their jobs would not be possible. Because without that public support, without the threat of people in the streets, politicians usually have tools at their disposal that would allow them to sabotage these investigations. And the, the thing that dissuades them, again, is this idea that, that you could see civil unrest and that eventually in these democracies that, that public anger could cause them to lose their jobs. So it sounds like maybe there's a whole sub-genre of, of uh, videos out there of cash and suitcases. We're watching cat videos and the Brazilians are watching cash and suitcase videos. So. Well, we have some equivalents of our own here in the United States, don't we? I mean, I, I joke about that, but, but that's, I mean, that, that actually speaks in some ways to the objectives here. You're, you're never going to eliminate corruption. 
Um, we have it here uh, in the U.S. It, it even exists in, in these countries, like in the Scandinavian countries, which otherwise, in terms of governance, are, are way ahead of the pack. And I think the, or not I think, I know that the goal of people like um, Judge Sergio Moro and, and uh, some of the the people, uh, the prosecuting team there in, in Brazil and also the CICIG in Guatemala and elsewhere, what they want is to just leave behind a society that is significantly less corrupt than the one that they grew up in. And I, I think that's an honorable goal. At this same conference, you, you know, you guys didn't just describe the problem. You actually did propose some solutions or your the, the guests that you invited proposed some pretty good solutions. And just looking at a few of them, they're all, you know, fairly common sense here. Create strong attorney general's offices, uh, deep in anti-corruption efforts in the private sector, judicial cooperation within hemisphere. There's one here that sort of jumps out at me, allow for greater use of plea bargains. What's what's that about and why is that instrumental or why would that be effective fighting uh, corruption? Well, it was absolutely the key in Brazil. Um, and Brazil, it was no accident that Brazil adopted a, a much more sweeping plea bargain law in 2013 and that it was the next year that, um, that the car wash scandal really erupted. And it was the ability, you know, essentially to allow prosecutors uh, to negotiate lesser jail terms in return for more information that broke the scandal wide open and made it something that was not just limited to, again, that single gas station in in Brasilia. It, it ended up leading up into the very highest reaches of power in both the public and the private sector. And most countries uh, around the region don't have that, um, you know, they don't have those tools. They don't have a, a, a plea bargain law that is that generous, in part because plea bargains in the region were not traditionally, have not traditionally been allowed, because I think that at one point they were seen as a form of negotiating impunity for people who had committed crimes. I, I would say, I mean, this raises the question, uh, you may be thinking it too, Richard, why would any politician in his right mind now, having seen what happened in Brazil, uh, why would they allow for plea bargains in their country? And, you know, this is in some reflect, in some ways, you know, there are clearly uh, governments out there who do have an interest in greater transparency. Uh, the best example is probably in Chile, where the recently departed government of Michelle Bachelet um, after there was a uh, fairly significant corruption scandal that uh, exploded involving members of her family, her reaction, um, quite um, laudable in my view, was to uh, set up a commission that drafted a series of, of reforms uh, to try to ensure that things like that, um, essentially influence trafficking, wouldn't happen again. And we had the drafter uh, of that, Eduardo Engel, or the, the head of that commission, up with us in New York. So there are, you know, there are well-intentioned politicians out there, believe it or not, who are pushing on this and who want to see things get done. Although it's not clear to me whether they're ascendant uh, at this time. So you sound relatively upbeat and looking at the recommendations that the, this panel uh, suggested, are, are there any out there that you think are going to uh, be adopted relatively soon by most of the countries in Latin America? Or what, how would you assess the, the likelihood of, of implementation of the, uh, the specific recommendations that you all are putting on the table? 
Well, I mean, the anti-corruption movement is at a, is at a real crossroads right now. And there is no way to sugarcoat the fact that in some cases, um, governments have been able to essentially resist the pressure coming from the judicial sector and, and in some cases beat them back. I, I think the most notorious example of this recently has been in Guatemala, where the CICIG, which is the, the UN-created uh, commission that, that, ex- that investigates crimes there and, and contributed, or I say contributed, led directly to uh, the resignation and imprisonment of a former Guatemalan president, Otto Perez Molina, in 2015. Um, Perez Molina's successor, uh, Jimmy Morales, immediately got caught up in problems of his own, uh, you know, clearly part of this generation of politicians who was not able to read the writing on the wall. But Morales has been able to uh, mount a pretty effective counterattack against the Sisig and, and against the rule of law, aided and abetted, uh, by the way, by, by some people here in the United States. And you see this, you know, this kind of, we're, we're <laughs> I, I say sometimes we're in the empire strikes back mode or phase of, of the anti-corruption movement, because you see uh, some examples in, in Brazil where very high-level politicians, including all the way at the top, President Michel Temer, uh, have been able to use their political allies to uh, avoid being held accountable for, um, for allegations and charges, at least until they, they leave office. So I, I, I am, you know, I, I'm optimistic about the longer trend, but but kind of, but worried about where things stand right now because you know there is a situation in which, unfortunately, all this could lead to again, if habits don't change, and if democracy, if faith in democracies continues to erode, um, then that could give way to dictatorship and or at the very least authoritarian elected leaders uh, who, who commandeer all the power for themselves. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm a guy who believes in, in democracy above all and I, has seen tremendous progress in that front in Latin America over the last 30 years. So that, that, that would be a tough pill to swallow. So I just want to comment on the CC case. There is a Russian angle to that, or at least accusations of Russian meddling in that. What What is that about? It's about a, a family that sounds like it got caught up in a standoff between the Russians and the Guatemalans and CC. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Look, there's a lot of murkiness around this case, and I have tried my best to figure out what's happening there and, and honestly have not been able to get the clarity uh, that I've wanted, in part because there there may be none. Um, what I can say is that, you know, this family that got caught up, this Russian family that purchased passports in, in return for essentially um, a bribe, even though they ostensibly did not know they were paying a bribe, uh, um, they were sentenced to, I think, 14 and 16 years, respectively, uh, for having done that, which, um, frankly, sounds high to me uh, in the Guatemalan context, which again is part of, you know, part of what, 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 what makes a sort of black and white rendering of what's happening there difficult. At the same time, I know Ivan Velasquez, who's the head of the CICIG. Uh I know Delma Aldana, who is the outgoing um, attorney general in Guatemala. The notion that they have been co-opted by the Russian government in some meaningful way is completely absurd. 
is completely absurd. And there's been lots of innuendo to that respect uh, in the press in Guatemala and, and some of it in the press here. And what I fear has happened is that you've you've taken or the enemies of Sisig have taken a case where there may have been some overreach on the part of um, of the prosecutors or the sentencing judge and use that to call the whole initiative into question. So it sounds like there's there's really a need here for more investigative journalism, which is exactly one of the points that you your panel made to basically establish facts on the ground in, in cases in which you've got sort of charges and countercharges. Yeah, well, nothing nothing clears it up like the facts. And I, with this Guatemala case in particular, I've wished that I could go down there for you know a week or ten days and and try to get my head around it because it's it's really important. I mean, Guatemala has been. Um, Guatemala and Brazil have really been the two most dramatic fronts of the regional anti-corruption fight. And it's worth saying, I've said before, that Guatemala is the less likely of the two. I mean, a country that in many respects has, has had one of the most troubled histories, and of, of including recent histories, of, of any country in the region has some of the weakest institutions. And so seeing this, this, this progress that they've made with, with huge support from Guatemalan society has been breathtaking and, and something that I think should be um, should be encouraged, which which part of the reason why you know seeing it fall victim to this this um, you know this this case questions about this case has has been tough. The only problem with that plan, Brian, is that once you step off the plane in Guatemala, the econ- the economy is going to implode. So we need to. Uh... <laughs> That's right. It's a wonder that there's no travel ban on me on countries with fragile economies. But I, I, I promise, I promise to behave if I if I go to Guatemala. We <laughs> may need just to, to keep you ensconced in New York for a while until until things settle down. But well, you know, keeping me here has its consequences too. <laughs> we we that's for another podcast. It sounds like. <laughs> okay. Speaking of other podcasts, I understand you have started a podcast of your own called Deep South. How's that going? No, it's going well. We we just uh, published our third episode. Um, the idea is that it, we, we focused on, on newsmakers and just very uh, quick, snappy, 20-minute uh, interviews with, with people around the region, and, and it's been fun. Uh, we have uh, lots of other um, quality podcasts uh, out there, including yours and, and the one that uh, Greg Weeks does and, and some others. So, um, yeah, I think the more the merrier in this field. I think the more light that we can shine on the region, the more voices that we can give rise to. I feel like uh, the, the the better profile and the, the better people will understand Latin America. Well, um, good luck with that. When you're ready for like that ninth level of podcast wisdom, give me a call and I'll un- unlock all the secrets okay. to the, right, to the trade. That. But thanks very much again for joining me. Great interview, uh, Brian. Look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. All right, so we are done talking about corruption with Brian Winter, and now we're going to move on to a very cheery topic. Sarah, you've brought me something very happy and uplifting. Today is about inflation rates. Okay, great. But as I'm sure you've seen in the news recently, there's been a lot about Argentina's peso um, collapse. They've been experiencing really high inflation and uh, had a big peso collapse last week and have been appealing to the IMF. There have been a couple of great articles out coming out about just the human aspect of this, um, and one just following how people are personally being affected, and they're just unable to pay for um, a lot of basic things. The prices of beef are going way up, um, and 
especially in Buenos Aires, there's been a big struggle with bread makers and bakeries. Um, so just basic supplies, people are struggling now to, to buy basic food items and so on. Basic food items, as well as utilities, um, electricity, gas, and water, the prices of those have gone way up. So um, it just goes to show how something so big can affect people. Right, and this is going to affect President Macri because obviously his popularity is probably going to go down if people can't pay their light bills and buy bread and so on and so on. Yeah, absolutely. He's been, it's part of his bigger policy where he's been... um, taking away some subsidies that people used to receive for cheap um, utilities, especially. Um, And so people are really starting to feel the effects of those, and um, it's really harming his popularity throughout the country. So, and Argentines have seen this before. They've seen this movie before, and it usually doesn't end well with uh, skyrocketing inflation, and that usually is the... uh, the harbinger of presidents leaving all of a sudden. So, all right, that was the big little news for today, inflation in Argentina. 35 West is a production of the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Special thanks to our editor, Ripka Gemelangsari, program manager, Linnea Sandin, and research assistant, Sarah Balmunk. If you like the show, please, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening today, and please join us again next week. (laughs) 